Well, good morning. It's good to be with all of you. My name is Elise, and I'm one of the pastors here. Before we dive into our scripture passage this morning, I wanted to let you know of some big news that happened in the Steele household. I found out that I am pregnant. Yeah, thank you. And some of you may know that my body does not like to be pregnant. And this pregnancy, unfortunately, is just the same, no different than my other two. So I should let you know that last night I was so tired when I fell asleep, I forgot to take my medication that helps it to where my food doesn't come back up. So this morning, I took a half a dose at my doctor's recommendation, and I confess this to you because it just so happens to be a sleeping pill that I have to take. <laughs> so if I nod off during my sermon, like some of you may, um, that's the reason why. This morning, we will be looking at judgment, and it seems fitting that I would be the one to be preaching on this. Something you might not know about me is that I can be a rather judgmental person. I can definitely point out the shortcomings in my fellow human. However, most of my criticisms and judgments are aimed at myself. Thus, when I do something I deem wrong or a mistake, it can be hard to live inside my own mind. So prior to the start of my freshman year of college, I was legitimately terrified that somehow I had snuck through high school with a decent GPA and then got myself into college, but really I was an idiot and nobody knew it, not even myself. And then this fear became a reality when I took, accidentally, an advanced anthropology class my freshman year and got a D plus on my midterm. I got my test back and as luck would have it, I had to immediately meet my student advisor for coffee following class. She happened to be brilliant, graduating that year summa cum laude, and the last thing I wanted to let her know was that I had gotten a D plus. So as we sat down for coffee, the first question out of her mouth was, so, how are things going for you academically? Tears started running down my face and I admitted to her my test grade. It was the worst grade I had ever received and it confirmed my own judgment of myself. I was in fact an idiot. That day I received my test and I thought it was the end of the road for me academically, that I'd head back to my dorm room pack up my things, call my parents, and move home. The world had spoken, and I was a dummy. As I admitted literally all of those things to my advisor, she was incredible. She shared with me that she had taken chemistry her first semester of college and had gotten a D minus on her midterm. She directed me to speak to my professor, assured me that this did not mean I was an idiot, and that I didn't have to fail out. She put my judgmental self in check. She silenced the voice that was making me feel like a failure and assured me that my life did not lie in ruin. When I examine my judgmental spirit, I see it actually as a double-edged sword. 
It can be used for good and it can be used for evil. In our society today, it seems the character quality of judgmental is a slight against someone. No one would want to be known for that. We live in a time of, you do you. I'm not here to judge. We don't want to hear hard truths. We don't want another to point out our flaws. But I don't believe that this is loving. We saw throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he continually called out the sins he saw in others. Yet he did it through a spirit of love and a desire for restoration. When I was in seminary, there was this notorious preaching professor. People would say, oh, she is ruthless. She's going to let you have it when you finish preaching. However, I took her class and found her to be a breath of fresh air. Finally, somebody who spoke the truth. I appreciated her pointing out the flaws and her willingness to challenge us and say the things other people would be unwilling to say. Because in the end, I knew she just wanted us to be good pastors. She herself was a woman deeply convicted by the word of God. I remember she once told our class, the moment you don't tremble when you stand in the pulpit, tender your resignation that day. For no one should feel confident on their own when preaching the word of God. So when we read Jesus' words in Matthew's gospel from the Sermon on the Mount about judgment, it is easy for us to read them and say, well, we're just not supposed to judge. But that's not what Jesus is saying at all. Matthew is a book written to the religious leaders of the time. It is steeped in Judaism with lengthy genealogy opening the book and a plethora of Old Testament scripture references. It was written to people who knew God's laws inside and out. And for the first century Jews, judgment was something that happened on a regular basis. There were cleanliness codes and holiness codes. People were constantly examining their own lives, judging themselves and others, assessing whether or not they were holy enough for God and community. However, over time they came to worship the law instead of God. Their spirit of judgment became condemning rather than restorative. I think this is a stumbling block for many Christians today. We are so quick to judge others based on their actions and quick to condemn them for it. We often look at those we judge with eyes of disgust rather than eyes of compassion. As Jesus speaks to the people of the, of the time, he instructs them first to remove the plank in their own eye before removing the sawdust in their brother's eye. So I copied this illustration from a pastor. <laughs> I wondered what it was like to have a plank in your eye. Um, it's not very fun. It's a little hard to maneuver around. I'm a little nervous about a sliver. But this plank has greatly obstructed my view. I, uh, I'm very much seen through the plank <laughs> and not much of reality. So then the question comes, how do we remove the plank in our own eye? How do we even know that it is there? This is where we need people like my preaching professor people who are willing to share the truth in love, people we can trust who want the best for us, 
Their desire is to see us flourish in our relationship with God and with others. When David, the king of the Old Testament, is caught up in a horrible web of sin, we don't see him repentant until he is called out by Nathan the prophet. David has raped a woman, impregnated her, tried to cover it up, and when that didn't work, he murders her husband. You'd think at some point a man known as a man after God's own heart would think, I may have done a few things wrong. But it isn't until Nathan comes to him that we hear about in 2 Samuel, where he says, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew up, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food and drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come. Instead, he took the lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against this man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. And David's response I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan is a trusted ally of David's. He knows that Nathan wants the best for him, that Nathan is a vessel of God's truth. When confronted with sin, David is not defensive or in denial. He immediately is remorseful. We need our Christian community of close friends to help shed light of the areas of our life that we may have become blind to. When I was a kid, I would go down to Utah for six weeks every summer and visit my dad, where my brothers also lived. One day, I had been playing across the street at a neighbor's house, and I started to walk home. Another neighborhood boy, who was also going back to his house, saw me, and he called me Fatso. I was about eight or nine at the time, so, of course, I walk into the house and I'm crying and met by my two older brothers and tell them what had happened. Well, they immediately got on their bikes and went down to this kid's house. They roughed him up a little. And then my brother Casey looked at him and said, no one calls our sister fat except us. <laughs> now, I realized it's not very nice that anybody was calling me fat as a child. But at the end of the day, I felt so vindicated by my brothers. I was like, that's right, only they call me fat. <laughs> because I knew that they loved me. I knew that my brothers were on my team. They were on my side. They wanted what was best for me. This neighborhood boy, he was just being mean. He wanted me to feel awful about myself. And he could care less about the rest of me, right? In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it encourages us, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person 
gently. It is a family matter, folks. For those of us who follow Jesus, our desire should be the best for our brother or sister. We do this by building one another up, spurring one another on to love and good deeds, and by calling out the hard truth of sin. We are not called to the world's standards of, you do you, I'm not here to judge. No, we are called to be in a community with one another, bearing with one another, and helping the other be made more and more in the likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in a spirit of humility and gentleness and love that we go to our brother and sister. If we are casting our judgments under any other influence, they are to be left unsaid. For if we don't see our fellow human first as a beloved child of God, then we have work to do in ourselves. If we do not understand our own deep need for forgiveness and grace, then we are in no place to be casting judgments on another person. When God first called the Israelite people, God called them to be a people like no other on earth. He called them to a different standard. And the same is true for the Christian. As one scholar put it, Jesus chose three areas the Christian is called different than the world. In relationships, ethics, and charity. Our culture today has a low personal moral standard. You do you. But when that cultural standard is broken, there is little to no forgiveness. The opposite is true of our gospel. We have a high moral code as Jesus calls us to be holy, as our Father in heaven is holy. But we have an equally high gift of grace and forgiveness, for no one is beyond redemption. A common practice in many communal worship services is the act of confession. It is the time to examine our own hearts and our faithfulness to God to ask God to reveal to us the planks in our eyes, to ask the Holy Spirit to convict us of the wrongdoings, to see if we are in a place of humility, able to receive constructive criticism from God or our fellow brother or sister, to honestly examine our lives, to see if we have lived in the light of the gospel seeing one another as a beloved child of God and desiring the best for our neighbor, even if it means a hard conversation. So we will now take the next few moments in silent prayer and reflection, asking God to illuminate for us the planks in our eyes and give us the courage to face our insufficiencies. And then we will close together in a corporate prayer of confession. Let us pray. Let us join together 
in this prayer of confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, receive the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. I invite you now to stand and to receive the benediction. May you, the beloved children of God, the God who knit you together in your mother's womb, the God who promised to never leave you nor forsake you, no matter what you have done in this life, the God who has come and proclaimed that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, may you go out in that light and that truth, knowing that this word instructs us to life and life in the full. May Christ go with you with his peace, now and forevermore. Amen.